So today I'm going to speak about meditation. Greg's going to go on his first Goenka retreat in a week or so. And I'm going to sort of explain what I do and why I do it. And not to encourage you to do it my way, but to do it your way. So I first started meditating when I came here in 1978-79. Shinzen Young was the vice abbot. Reverend Karuna was the abbess. And there was a little introductory 15-minute explanation of meditation. And I can remember going next door to Kuan Yin House, and the explanation was just watch your breath, count your breath, sit on the floor, cross-legged if possible, and that's all you need to do. And so it, it was enough to begin with, but it led to a very uncomfortable body and an agitated mind. So I'm thinking there must be some kind of technique or some way to meditate and, and not have to suffer so much. And I didn't find it. Uh, the first two years were really uncomfortable. Uh, I had sore knees, my back didn't feel very good, and my mind would wander, and I would wonder why I, I was doing it. And other people seemed to be just blissed out, happy, smiling, unaffected by sitting on the floor for an hour, hour and a half. And I started to do some research into what meditation was designed for. And the ultimate goal of meditation is simply to change your mind. You know, and, and it sounds pretty easy, but um, you want to change your mind in the right way, not the wrong way. So I did some more reading, and I found there are two forms of meditation. There's Vipassana, insight meditation, and there's Samatha, tranquility meditation. And the Buddha, when he was in India, starting his ascetic journey of six years, found some wonderful meditation teachers who taught him how to do Samatha meditation, tranquility meditation. And of course, in all the suttas, the Buddha surpassed all his teachers. He was like the best. And his teachers would ask him, please take over my students. You're better than I am. Take over my students. And he would continue to say, you know, this really isn't what I was looking for. I wanted to find a permanent solution to suffering, and this seems to be a temporary solution to suffering, the kind of meditation I've been taught and the kind of meditation I'm now doing. There must be something else. And as the story goes, that's when the Buddha rediscovered insight meditation, vipassana meditation. This particular Buddha, according to some forms of Buddhism, was the 28th Buddha. And if you go to uh, the uh, IBMC Facebook page, you'll find a list of the 28 Buddhas and their names. Uh, most of them are unpronounceable for me, but they're there. And they even included the 29th Buddha, which some people talk about and some people don't. And that's Maitreya Buddha, who will be reborn on earth once the teachings of Siddhartha Gotama, our Buddha, have been lost to the world. That will be the cue to be reborn. So far, as I can tell, we haven't had a woman Buddha yet. 
that will happen in the future. A lot of times men and women are victims of place and time. I get the feeling this is probably the place and the time for it to happen in the future. Will the female Buddha have different experiences than the male Buddha? I think nirvana is nirvana no matter what gender you are. So probably not. But back to my story. So I looked at Vipassana meditation. I even tried to do Vipassana meditation for a while, and I started to do body scanning, looking for sensation and recognizing it, and then going to the next sensation. And what I found for me in my Vipassana practice was I became more and more agitated because I was more and more clear about what I didn't like in my life and the world. And it became obvious to me that I was surrounded by all the things I didn't like. So I thought to myself, well, maybe I'll go back to Samatha meditation. Maybe I'll go back to the bliss and happiness of Samatha meditation and not put myself through all the suffering of insight. So I did. And then I found a book, The Name Escapes Me, uh, a few years ago written by a Zen master on... Zen meditation and bamboo breathing. A certain way to deal with your breathing that allows you to accentuate your focus on the object of meditation. So I thought I'd give it a try. Now the bamboo breathing seems to be just breathing with your diaphragm rather than with your lungs. And you expand your diaphragm, and if you think of your diaphragm as a balloon, it's like expanding a balloon on your lap. And then what I do is I just bend a little forward to put some pressure on my diaphragm. And the pressure on the diaphragm makes my focus that much stronger. It's an odd thing to talk about, but a real thing in your practice when you get to experience it. Now, I have to admit I had some advantages in diaphragmic breathing because I play the harmonica. And anybody who plays a wind instrument understands the importance of diaphragmic breathing. That's where the power comes from. That's where the sustainability of notes come from. So there I was, and I thought to myself, okay, if I was going to explain it to somebody, what would I explain? How would I explain what I do? Well, the first thing would be how I sit. Now, traditionally, there are three forms of sitting meditation in Zen practice. Number one is full lotus. Number two is half lotus. Number three is called the Burmese style. Now, I started meditating around the age of 30, and I was inflexible from my weightlifting experience, so I immediately went towards Burmese sitting. And Burmese sitting is when you have one leg parallel to the other leg in front of you. You're not sitting with your ankles crossed. You're sitting with one leg in front of the other leg, and you can change them. And that gives you a a good amount of stability. They say that the full lotus is the most stable because you lock your legs into a triangle. It's very difficult to fall over even if you fall asleep. 
Half lotus is, is good if you can't do that, and Burmese is fine. Because the whole idea is just to find a way to sit as comfortably as possible, but to have it as stable as possible. Now, a lot of times when you get to a certain age, or if you have some infirmities, then sitting in a chair is appropriate as well. And you sit on the front third of the chair, and your legs are parallel to the ground, and and your feet are flat, and your hands are resting on your knees. And that's a very stable position. Probably the, the least stable position as far as consciousness is concerned is lying on the ground. Because it doesn't take long for meditation to turn into sleep. Which is pleasant and rejuvenating, but it sort of misses the point of meditation, which is a highly focused state of mind and a relaxed state of body. And when you think about that description, it's ironic. Because generally speaking, if we have a very focused mind, we have a very tense body. A relaxed mind, a relaxed body. But in this case, a focused mind in a relaxed body. So I fill up my diaphragm with air and I bend just a little bit forward. I don't have good posture. You know, for a, for a Buddhist meditator, you don't want to sit like a captain in the army. Chest out, stomach in. Yet it doesn't work as well as to have it a little more relaxed and just sort of resting on the diaphragm. And almost every time you breathe, your body just moves just a little bit. But that tension is created in the diaphragm, and that gives you that extreme focus that's necessary to go into deep states of bliss and happiness. Now, people say, what do I do with my eyes? Do I keep them open? Do I keep them closed? Well, in some cases, half open, looking about three feet in front of you on the floor. But I prefer to have my eyes closed, because if you sit in a room of a bunch of meditators, they're always moving. They're scratching and they're nodding and they're just trying to find that perfect place of comfort and they never can. And so it's just like long grass on a windy day. It just keeps moving. So I keep my eyes closed. And the whole idea is this is an internal samatha tranquility. This is an internal exercise, not an external exercise. What do you do with your mouth? Well, you keep your mouth closed. And you put your tongue on your palate, on the top of your mouth. And then that prevents you from having to swallow as often as you normally would. And if you're in a very quiet environment, you can literally hear people swallow. And it's a bit disconcerting. You want to breathe through your nose and not your mouth. And you want to be in a relaxed, stable position, not a tense, taut position. And it, take, it took me about two years to feel comfortable sitting for any length of time. So it's, for me, it was not an immediate gratification. It was a gradual process of getting rid of physical pain and coming to a place of acceptance with the body sitting as motionless as possible for a long period of time. The body's pretty easy to train. Not too many problems. It just takes time and patience. But the mind, it will take the rest of your life. So in Samatha meditation, what they talk about is going into deep states of focus and concentration. And there's eight levels, but I'm going to talk about four levels because it's much simpler. The four levels of jhana, also called dhyana. 
the first level has applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. The second level has three. It has happiness, bliss, and equanimity. The third level has two. It has happiness and equanimity. The fourth level has one. Equanimity, perfect balance of mind. What I like about this explanation is it really points out the fact that Buddhism is a path of renunciation. You don't gain anything by doing Buddhist practice. What you do instead is you lose the things that prevent your perfection, your ultimate perfection as a human being. So let's talk about applied thought and sustained thought. The object of your meditation is the sensation of breath. And you bring your mind to the tip of your nose or to your belly, I prefer the nose, and you act like a sentry standing next to the wind, the air, moving out and moving in, moving out and moving in. And if you were doing Vipassana, you might say, is this a long breath, is this a short breath? But in Samatha meditation, you're just simply being aware of the sensation of breath. Now, really important, the sensation, because this sensation is always happening now. It's not happening in the future, it's not happening in the past. This is a way to bring your consciousness, your mind, to the present moment experience of your life. And what you have as a meditator is your breath. Now, in the first year or so, I found my mind would wander, that the sensation of breath was not strong enough to hold it there and be interesting enough to keep my attention. So I added the concept of counting. Numbers are simply concepts, and I applied 1 to 10, 10 to 1, 1 to 10, 10 to 1, on the sensation of breath. But as every meditator will tell you, then the choice is, do I count the in-breaths or do I count the exhalations? Which one is better? And as it turns out, if you follow Zen and the samurai warrior, the exhalation is the strongest. So if the samurai warrior is in a fight with an opponent, he only moves on the exhalation because that's the strongest part of the breath. Ah, I said to myself, isn't that fascinating? So I'll just be a samurai warrior and count my exhalations, the strongest part of my breath. So I count from 1 to 10 and 10 to 1, 1 to 10 and 10 to 1. And I do that for a half hour, 45 minutes or an hour. Now, if I lose my place, which always happens, I'll go back to 1. If I go to 11 and go past 10, I'll go back to 1. So the first year of my breath counting practice was called going back to 1. But I got better and I was able to continue my counting for a whole half hour, sometimes an hour. When I was able to do that, the applied thought and sustained thought now was taken care of, I was able to realize a certain sense of physical pleasure, a certain sense of mental happiness, and the beginning of balance or equanimity. Now the meditator has to choose at some point what to get rid of. If you do it long enough, applied thought and sustained thought automatically occur. You have trained your mind to simply rest 
on the sensation of breath, with counting and without. And now you have a stronger sensation of physical pleasure, a stronger sensation of happiness, and a little stronger balance or equanimity. So the meditator reflects on pleasure and says it's a wonderful thing. Physical pleasure is just perfect, but it's dualistic. And the other side of physical pleasure is going to be pain. And I'm attached to the pleasure, and I have aversion to the pain. And as a meditator, I find it easier to give up my attachment than my aversion. So I say to myself, I'm going to figure out how to give up my attachment to pleasure. I can't give up pleasure. It happens automatically in the body. But I can give up my attachment to it. So with practice and insight, one is able to give up the pleasure, attachment to the pleasure, and now have two characteristics left, happiness and equanimity. The cool thing about giving up the attachment to pleasure is you have also at the same time given up your aversion to pain. And you'll find as a meditator, pain becomes a constant companion. It's, it's always just below the surface. And what I did in my meditation practice is I transformed my pain into sensation. Because until I gave it the name pain, it wasn't as much as a problem as sensation. But once I labeled the sensation pain, it became a big problem because pain is the indicator that you'll soon be dead. And you're going to have to work really hard not to die, so you're going to have to get rid of your pain, and you're going to have to move your leg. And if you move your leg, chances are you won't have to call 911. So there you are. But in moving your leg, you find that not 10 minutes later, the pain comes back in a different way. And then you realize you'll be dead soon and you move your leg again. And so your whole half hour, hour is just sort of moving to find that place of comfort rather than transforming pain into sensation. And so now, with sensation as your experience, you say to yourself, wow, my left knee has a very strong sensation. (laughs) But it's enables you to sit a little bit longer in the sensation when it's not pain. Now we come to happiness and equanimity, the third jhana. And you reflect on happiness, happiness being the mind. And almost like a a quiet forest pond, and you throw a rock into the pond, and you get these wavelets. And happiness are like the wavelets that go through your, your mind. But the problem with the wavelets in the pond is it doesn't reflect the sky in a natural way. You see the waves. And the mind is the same way. Our mind does not reflect our reality in a natural way. We reflect it through our emotions, through our pain, through our prejudice, through our our peer group pressure through our political perspective, we reflect all sorts of different things in that quiet pond of the mind. And the idea is to see reality exactly the way it is, 
to get to that place where you reflect it un, unencumbered by waves or wavelets. So you got to give up your happiness because happiness distorts your reality. And if you can give up your attachment to happiness, you can give up your attachment to sadness, which also distorts your reality. So you have an attachment to happiness, you have an aversion to sadness, always dualistic, and you want to go past the duality of happiness and sadness and come to that place of perfect balance, a perfect reflection of the way your world is. So you look at it, you work on it, you read about it, you get some insight, and finally you're able to give up your attachment to happiness. It still occurs, but it has its own life now. You don't want it to last any longer than it's supposed to, and you still have sadness, and you don't want it to last any shorter than it's supposed to, but you're unmoved by it. It doesn't create the ripples on the pond anymore. And now you come to the last level of tranquility and its perfect balance of mind. Now, it lacks happiness, it lacks sadness, it lacks pleasure, and it lacks pain. So we have another word that we could use to describe this fourth level of tranquility, this place of equanimity. We could use the word peace. This is where your peace resides. This is the place. This is your refuge. This is when your life and the world around you has turned into chaos, you can find peace in this fourth jhana, this fourth level of tranquility. What the Buddha found with this is he was not able to take that peace off the cushion and go into the world. It left. He needed to have certain conditions. And if you read some of the ancient texts in the Theravada, they tell you exactly the best place to meditate and the worst place to meditate. This is the worst place to meditate. The urban environment. It doesn't, it's not conducive to tranquility and peace. But if you can figure out how to meditate here, you can meditate anywhere. So it does have that advantage. You don't need a quiet forest path or pond to sit next to. You don't need all those things. You just need to be able to sit and find your focus, find your object of meditation. So let's say you want to go all the way to nirvana. Bhante Gunaratna, in his Ph.D., thesis talked about how to use certain aspects of tranquility meditation, jhana, to experience nirvana. But vipassana meditation that the Buddha rediscovered is really the most direct way to nirvana. So let's talk about vipassana and sensation. You're going to be scanning your body from the top of your head to the tip of your toes and up and down looking for sensations. Thankfully, we find them rather quickly, and thankfully there's only three sensations we need to be aware of. We need to be aware of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Neutral generally doesn't catch our attention, so now we have pleasant and unpleasant. 
And you may find the only sensations you're aware of are unpleasant. But that's fine. Those are the strongest ones. And so you might spend a half hour scanning up and down, up and down, just noting pleasant, unpleasant, not tearing them apart, not breaking them into the pieces, but just pleasant, unpleasant. After that half hour of scanning, you go into a deep state of reflection and you try to find the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom that will liberate you from your suffering, from this world of samsara. Those three aspects of Buddhist wisdom are nicca, dukkha, anatta. So let's talk about the first one. Anicca is impermanence. And you look at all the sensations you became aware of. And you say to yourself, were any of them permanent, unchanging, fixed? And you have to say to yourself, with a, no, they were all temporary. <clears throat> and they would all vary from intense to barely noticeable. And then they come back and be intense again. But none of them stayed the same more than a moment or two. And then you would take that insight and you'd apply it to the world around you. And you would say... Is there anything in this world that is not impermanent, that stays the same, that's fixed? And with proper reflection, you would come to the conclusion that everything in the world is always in a constant state of flux and change and is one of the reasons this world is so uncomfortable to be in because we, there are certain aspects of the world that we really like and want to hold on to and don't want them to change, and yet they do. And then there are certain aspects of the world we just really feel uncomfortable with and don't like and wish they would change much faster, and they don't. So you would say, okay, I understand now what the Buddha was saying, that all things are impermanent, and if I attach myself to anything that is impermanent, ultimately I will suffer because I will be dissatisfied when it changes. Number one. Number two, dukkha. Everything ultimately will be suffering. This is a pretty drastic statement, because you can go to Disneyland and maybe be happy for eight hours. No suffering there unless you work there. But then you apply this idea of impermanence to your experience in the world. And you say there are many good things in this world, many great relationships I've had, many things I've owned that have given me great pleasure. And in every case, they changed. Oftentimes, they would leave forever. The parents that you once loved will be buried sooner rather than later. Human life and a good life is 90 years, maybe less. So all the relationships you have with humans, they will change. They will cause you suffering. It is said that Abraham Lincoln, in one of his talks, and he gave a great talk, at the end had a little tear in his eye. And he sat down next to his wife, Mary. And Mary said to Abe, What's wrong, Abe? That was a great talk, one of your best. And Abraham Lincoln said, I looked into the audience and I realized a hundred years from now, everybody would be dead. It made me sad. 
So as I look into the audience, I realize 100 years from now, I'll be with you and we'll be dead. So it causes us to suffer. And if you like dogs and cats, they live 10 years, maybe 15, and then they go away. And if you like your car, it's only a matter of time until somebody hits it, somebody scratches it, and that brand new car you've spent $30,000 for is not as new as it could be any longer. And it brings sadness to our life. We want things to be as they are for as long as they can be, and it's not very long at all. So that second insight the grasp we have and all the things we own or think we do becomes lighter and lighter and pretty soon our hand just opens up and we realize all the things we want to own we only hold for a few moments until they finally go away. Somebody takes them, they break, we can't find them or the new model comes out. Keep those hands open, don't cling, don't grasp. Last but not least, anatta not self. This is a very difficult concept for us in the West because we like our self. It is important. We go to school for 18 years to have this monster self. Not only do we have a monster self, we impose it on everybody in our life, our friends, our relatives. We know what to do and how to do it. And we're going to share and force others into our way of looking at things. So you come to this place, well, what is self? And do I really have one? And does it exist for any period of time? And the conclusion I've come to, and the reason I say not self rather than no self, is we definitely have a self. And it is one of the gifts we have been given with human birth. And it allows us to change the world in either a positive way or a negative way, up to us, our choices. We can read, we can write, we can think, we can separate ourselves from the world around us. We can manipulate the earth and make dams and rivers and have a wonderful utopian community if we so choose. But self, the problem as I understand it, is it only thinks about one thing, itself and leaves others out in the dark or the rain. So this practice of Buddhism allows us to really look at the self carefully and understand that it is an illusion that has come together because of human birth, mind, and body. It's not what we think it is, but it is there. And a wise man once said, self is a good tool, but a terrible master. So in meditation, we get a chance to see self arise in a variety of ways. And we can see the good and the bad and the indifferent. And we start to understand that we can choose not to be the self if it creates more suffering rather than less. So we can choose to go to the grocery store and not buy that chocolate cake because that creates suffering and a little extra weight. We can choose to get the yogurt instead, which doesn't taste as good, but it's better for you. We can choose to do work and make a living 
in some profession that reduces suffering rather than increases suffering, if we so choose. We can choose to make a lot of money but give most of it away to help others, if we so choose. So the self is there. It's not our master. Meditation allows you to see it in a much different light and realize you have options in everything you think, say, and do, which is your karma. Having understood not-self, suffering, and impermanence, the grip, the grip is loosened and eventually not there at all. We realize that we suffer in this world because we are attached to things that are impermanent, we try to avoid suffering as much as possible, and we want to be the best self we can be. Well, if you want to be the best self you can be, it's not there. There's nothing there. You can be the best speech you can be. You can be the best doing you can be. You can be the best thoughts you can be. But generally speaking, you're not going to be the best self you can be because it's an illusion. Meditation takes you to that place. Ultimately, nirvana occurs in Vipassana meditation. Some say this lifetime, some say seven lifetimes, some say seven millennia. It could be tomorrow, it could be a hundred lifetimes from now. We don't know. We can't remember how many lifetimes we have practiced the Dharma. We can't remember how many lifetimes we have meditated. We don't know how close we are. So we continue our practice. And one day, suffering ends. One day, you are no longer able to create karma. One day, you will not be reborn into samsara ever again. You have achieved the goal. You have reached your perfection. You are in nirvana. Very cool. With samatha meditation, the goal is not nirvana, The goal is enlightenment, according to me. So what is enlightenment? Enlightenment is the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. And you can have a temporary experience, you can have a little longer experience, or you can be that experience. Now, when you have had that direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena in Mahayana Buddhism, we might call that a bodhisattva experience. It doesn't end your suffering. You will still suffer. It doesn't end your rebirths. You will still be reborn. But what it does do is it helps you see the connection you have with everything. What it does do is give you something to do for the rest of your life, which is reduce your suffering and the suffering of others. What it does do is it allows you to see how everything you think, say, and do reflects in the world around you and either increases suffering or decreases suffering. But it doesn't end your suffering. So, Bodhisattva, Enlightenment, Arhat Nirvana. Which one do you want? <laughs>